0: From Bhante Gunaratana, a Sri Lankan monk. This is in regards to meditation. And somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with a sudden and shocking realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking, gibbering madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. <laughs> it's always been this way. You just haven't noticed. <laughs> this is an incredible uh, journey that we are embarked upon here in these days so rare. Reminded of uh, this Hafiz poem called It Felt Love and he writes that how did the rose ever open its heart and give to the world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of the light even against its being. It felt the encouragement of the light even against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. As we are working within this practice, bringing in the light of awareness that's in many ways encouraging, just like the rosebud encouraging us at times, that though it may feel against our own being. But yeah, the payoff is that perhaps we'll otherwise just remain much too frightened in our lives. This journey of going inside is an arduous journey and one that's often not taken. I'm always uh, amazed with the words of St. Augustine written in the year 399 A.D. It's a long time ago, 399 Yet he writes that people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas. People wonder at the long courses of the rivers, the vast compass of the ocean, wonder at the circular motion of the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Walking right past themselves without ever wondering. Tonight's talk is uh, dedicated to all of us. been extremely humbled in both the group um, meetings that I had yesterday and the individual ones today, as well as other interactions, and just humbled with the incredible amount of sincerity, vulnerability, courage, that's present here within us in this community. It's not easy the type of work that we're doing. And yet all of us I trust sense that there is something to this this sense of being still being present and in many of the spiritual traditions they talk about the value of this being present. The Tao Te Ching mentions that there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is within you. St. Isaac of Nineveh lived in the 7th century, a Christian mystic in the country of Iraq. He writes, Be at peace with your own soul and then heaven and earth will be at peace with you. Enter eagerly into the treasure house that is within you and you will see the things that are in heaven. For this one single entry. This ladder that leads to the kingdom is hidden within you. So dive. Dive into yourself. Into your being and there you will discover the stairs by which to ascend. Diving deep into our being. There we will discover the stairs by which to ascend. Hafiz, very fond of Hafiz, a Sufi poet, wild man, he writes, for three days, Not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. That would be. (laughs) That means not leaving. Better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches in a chamber pot. No reading in there or writing poems. That would be cheating. Aim high for a 360-degree detox. This sitting alone, though, is not recommended if you are normally sedated or have been under a doctor's surveillance because of your brain. Dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. A ruby is buried here. A ruby is buried here. This life has its ups and downs Like to sometimes use poetry to just point. This is from Rokin. Well, maybe I'm not going to read Rokin. I'm not finding what I want to read here right now. But I will read about a death poem. And there's a tradition in Japan, Zen masters and haiku poets that write poems at the verge of their death. This is from Kozan. It says, a few days before his death, Kozan called his pupils together and ordered them to bury him without ceremony and forbade them to hold services in his memory. And then he wrote down this poem on the morning of his death. And when he laid down his brush, he died sitting upright. Great Zen story. He wrote, what did he write? He wrote, empty-handed... I entered the world, and barefoot I leave it. My coming, my goings, two simple happenings that got entangled. Two simple happenings that got entangled, yet within that entanglement, this dash between our birth date and our death date, lots going on, lots happening. This practice of mindfulness is the practice of awakening. I'm always amazed of uh, the story of the Buddha that I know many of us know. It was mentioned in his uh, 29th year as if waking up from a dream. I think we all can relate. Sometimes you wonder, like, how could he not see old age, disease, and death not until he was 29 years old, but Perhaps to some of us we haven't even fully recognized that yet. It seems at times it takes the first 50 years or more of our lives to finally individuate and to see who it is that we've become and then with horror and shock um, we begin the journey of untangling the tangle. Winston Churchill once said that... uh, that we get the face that we deserve by the time we're 50. (laughs) However, as we look at our elders, we can see that their faces begin to turn much more baby-like, softening and ease. I was very touched with uh, Richard's talk last night on compassion, self-compassion. In my own personal experience working with so many people, it really feels that the most rampant epidemic is this lack of compassion that we have for ourselves. And often we would not... The way that we treat others, very little of the time do we treat ourselves with the same type of compassion. Perhaps at times if we ever spoke to others the way that we speak to ourselves, we may not have that many friends. (laughs) We're faced from time to time with a lot of obstructions, challenges, neurotic tendencies. The Buddhists call it three great fires of greed, hatred, and ignorance. It is said in the Dharma that there's no fire hotter than greed, no ice colder than hatred, no fog thicker than ignorance. Speaking of ignorance, my old beloved meditation teacher, Pugu Siyadoh, he says, Midnight is dark, the new moon is dark, the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all Ignorance. In our practice of mindfulness, we are learning to dispel gradually our ignorance, our hatred, our greed. There's times where we, in the midst of our practice, get visited by all types of obstacles, hindrances, and so forth. in Buddhism, they talk specifically about five hindrances, and of course, there's uh, other obstacles that I'll mention, but regarding some of the hindrances that perhaps that we've been dealing with in a real practical way is the obstacles of sense desires. well, if only the the doll was a little spicier, if only this, if only that. If I can only have this or that, if only my meditation would be better. We at times get gripped with this sense of not being okay with the way things are in the moment, wanting something different is such a profound source of suffering, and leads us to a lot of distractedness in our meditation. It is perhaps very skillful to recognize that when this sense of wanting it to be different arises that we bring the light of awareness to it. Oh, here I am, wanting it to be different. And we'll notice the texture of that quality when we bring mindfulness to something that we were formerly not mindful about. In that moment, the wanting it to be different potentially dissipates the recognition of the wholesome factor of awareness Another common obstacle, challenges, are anger. Seen from another light, though, it can also show us exactly where it is that we are stuck. Perhaps there is a way here to work with this anger upon its recognition. Restlessness as well arises, sometimes known as the pacing tiger. And this is a great source of energy, but unfortunately it's not harnessed in a very creative way in the moment. But perhaps with working with our restlessness and harnessing this energy, it can become our great advantage by the recognition oh, here's restlessness. Sloth and torpor. I love those two words. Mm -hmm. One of the meditation teachers at Spirit Rock, he he he, he compo- called that like a. It's the name of a law firm called Sloth and Torpor. <laughs> uh, sloth and Torpor, something we all perhaps know about tired. Sometimes resistance of what's coming up in our bodies or in our minds. Sometimes the sloth and torpor is related to our balance. So many of us are afflicted with living out not within our own natural circadian rhythms of life, the artificial lighting, with our propulsion of going 24-7, 365, always on, many of us lose a sense of balance. When we're tired, we have to often keep on doing. Leveling out, finding our balance, knowing when it is time to rest the body, knowing when it is time to be awake. The fifth hindrance is doubt. Many of us at times get afflicted with this. Does this practice really work? I'm not getting anywhere. It's important to note while we're practicing that if doubt arises, that here is doubt. The mindfulness factor of awareness arises in that moment. Doubt is here. Oh, out. traditionally in some of the Buddhist uh, recommendations when we're feeling desire perhaps it's important to also as well that recognition and acknowledging the desire is there to perhaps we can meditate on the brevity the impermanence of life Anger arises. We can practice loving kindness. Sleepiness arises. Perhaps can re-erect our posture, setting a determination, reflecting perhaps on the urgency that at any moment death can come. What am I doing? Doubt arises. Perhaps reflections, inspirations on the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the teacher, the teachings, the community. Tangpulu Sedo talks about that one of the great sources of suffering is that we cannot conquer impermanence. Because we cannot conquer impermanence, we cannot control it, there is suffering. So much suffering, we have to wonder, why do we do it? And Hafiz says, now that all your worry has proved to be such an unlucrative business, why don't you just find a better job? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Why did we find a better job? But we live with a lot of fear. It's amazing in our country, we now have kind of a fear meter, certain colors, certain amounts of fear. Billions of dollars are spent on home security. We live with a lot of resentment and envy, boredom, judgment. Lack of compassion for ourselves to others. So we have to find a way to begin to work with these challenges. And mindfulness can offer a very actually, a balanced way. One way, potentially, of working with it that may not really help is suppressing all that comes up. Because it, you know, kind of leaks out after a while. And we can, of Mm -hmm. course, express it invent. vent. But after a while, it can begin to become very overwhelming and people may not want to hang around you, kind of like someone just stepped on some dog poop and, I don't know, being around an angry person is difficult, too. So perhaps we're beginning to learn in our practice this mindful attention. How we tend to, if you will, the greed, hatred, and ignorance and its variations that arise within us. There's certain words of wisdom I want to also share with you from Tongkulu Sado about What can support us in our practice? First, he talks about what doesn't support us, and that is that if we talk too much, if we are so much into socializing that we cannot be alone, that we're tired. The fourth, boy, is this a true one for us in our world? We're busy. No spare time to meditate. So Sato's suggestions is one, eat less. Two, sleep less. Three, talk less. Four, read less. like to speak to some allies more allies besides the noble silence that we've been talking about earlier but allies that can help support us in our practice and the buddha recommended the cultivation of the seven factors of enlightenment and I'd like to just go over them very briefly and the first and the foremost <coughs> one is mindfulness cultivating attention to maybe speak about that I want to just uh, read a little thing from Dr. Seuss from the places you'll go because I'm afraid that sometimes you'll play lonely games too games you can't win because you'll play against you all alone whether you like it or not Alone you will be something quite a lot. And when you're alone, there's a very good chance that you'll meet some things that scare you right out of your pants. There are some down the road between hither and yon that can scare you so much you won't want to go on. But on you will go. And though the weather be foul, on you will go though the hacking cracks howl. Onward up many a frightening creek Though your arms may get sore and your sneakers may leak, on and on you'll hike, and I know you'll hike far and face up to your problems wherever they are. You'll get mixed up, of course, as you already know. You'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go. So here's where the mindfulness comes in. So be sure where you step, and step with care and great tact. And remember that life's a great balancing act. Just never forget to be dexterous and deft. And never mix up your right foot with your left. <laughs> mindfulness. Never mix up your left right foot with your left. Mindfulness is this powerful factor. Cultivation of the seven factors of enlightenment begins with mindfulness. And the other qualities, investigation. The investigation of The Dharma of what seems to be true, the investigation of our own mind. Through this investigation, we can begin to discover perhaps our own preconceptions, our own fallacies, our own constructions of stories. Margaret Wheatley writes that I know what we notice. I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. We create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. We self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal process Of self reference and can look upon ourselves with self awareness, then we have a chance of changing. We can break the seal. We can begin to notice something new. This quality of investigation is such an important asset in our practice cultivating mindfulness, cultivating energy, cultivating investigation that leads to this quality of effort and energy. There's other factors develop along the way of some rapture, tranquility, concentration, still pointedness of mind. Perhaps the most supreme quality that is related and associated with wisdom is this quality of equanimity, the deep, wise understanding of the way things are. This is not disassociation or complacency. This is a wisdom that's based on the understanding of dissatisfactoriness, impermanence, insubstantiality. It's understanding of the rising and falling phenomena both of mind and body. Cultivation of these seven factors are great, great allies in our practice. As we were talking earlier about the cult that at times we as humans have these fires of greed, hatred, and ignorance, we of course can begin to turn those around and develop non-greed, non-hatred, non-ignorance. The cultivation of non-greed is from some of the teachings from Tom Puluseto that this cultivation of non-clinging, non-greed, helps to cultivate the qualities of generosity. The cultivating the qualities of non-hatred develop the qualities of, of, of the five precepts of virtue, of living without causing harm. The qualities of developing non-ignorance through the practices of mindfulness and meditation potentially can lead us to deeper and deeper levels of freedom When the Dharma, the Buddha, speaks about freedom, it's not just necessarily finding some balance with the vicissitudes of life, but potentially profound freedom from suffering, the end of suffering. In our efforts to try to become free of suffering there's times where we can try too hard sometimes we have to we think that we have to be made of the right stuff to be a meditator so here's a little thing about the right stuff so if you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills if you can be cheerful ignoring aches and pains if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles If you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it. If you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, you're made of the right stuff. If you can overlook when people take things out on you and through no fault of yours, something goes wrong. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment. If you can face the world without lies and deceit. If you can conquer tension without medical help. If you can relax without liquor if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, you probably are the family dog. (laughs) (coughs) Being made of the right stuff. How many times in our practice we're just feeling we're not we're not getting it, we're not doing it right. Trying too hard. Is there a way to potentially see and hold our practice in a different way? And sometimes it takes going outside of the box. Sometimes we get so locked in to the way that we see things and I always love the story that uh, Deborah shared with us one day about how they keep cattle in a corral. And cattle are very strong animals. They can easily knock over fences. And so ranchers put up electric fence and the cows go near the fence and they get shocked and they learn to stay away from the fence. And being economical, ranchers then shut off the fence, the electric power. And the cows never go near the fence. And the only thing that is actually keeping them inside is their own mind. Thank you, Deborah. It's <laughs> joy. And many of us, in some ways, are like cattle. Now, interestingly enough, in one of the suttas of the Buddha called the Bovine Sutta, I kid you not, <laughs> I kid you not, there was a group of ascetics that began to walk like cows, eat like cows, Act like cows and some other people were just saying, you know, these these must they're very amazing people and and they they finally they went to the Buddha and they asked him, you know, what if you you know, they told him about what was going on and the Buddha said, Well if you if you're acting like a cow, eating like a cow, talking like a cow, you'll probably be reborn as a cow. (laughs) The bovine sutta. So, right view, right understanding, applying our mind to the practice, centering it upon the fires that are burning within us, within our own greed, hatred, and ignorance. And where are they burning? From the Dharma point of view, they're burning in what is seen, what is smelled, what is heard, what is tasted, what is touched, and what is thought. You notice that I put my hand on the heart when I say thought, and Buddhist psychology, they consider the mind to be located in the heart, and that the mind is considered to be a sense organ. Just like the nose smells and the tongue tastes, the ears hear, the eyes see, the bodies feel, the mind thinks. It analyzes, it scrutinizes, it compares, and contrasts. You know what it does, you've been sitting with it, barreling down the hill, going out of control. No different than it was yesterday. being open to potentially holding and seeing your practice in a different light is very helpful. In this room there's you know approximately um, there might be like around 45 50 people in the room and there's 45 or 50 different ways of seeing this room and yet somehow locked into this seat in this chair this is like how it is And so perhaps the expansion of our awareness is that there may be another way of seeing and holding how we're holding our own minds We're open to the possibility not trying too hard not trying too lax finding that <clears throat> middle spot in these days we've been experiencing a lot of pain physically emotionally There's ways of potentially working with this pain that can be very, very helpful. And one of the kindest <clears throat> instructions that I've read uh, is, uh, from Pema Chodron It's called the Pith Instruction, the short instruction <clears throat> regarding meditation. And she really just encapsulates it with just one word, and that is to just stay. Stay. And learning to stay with ourselves in meditation is like training a dog. And if we train a dog by beating it, we'll end up with an obedient but very inflexible and rather terrified dog. The dog may obey when we say, stay, come, roll over, sit up, but it'll also be neurotic and confused. By contrast, training with kindness results in someone who's flexible and confident and who doesn't become upset when situations are unpredictable and insecure. Beautiful. By contrast, training with kindness results in someone who's flexible and confident, who doesn't become upset when situations are unpredictable and insecure. So she goes on to say, whenever we're wandering off while we're meditating, we can gently encourage ourselves to stay. Experiencing restlessness? Stay discursive mind stay fear and loathing going out of control stay aching knees throbbing back stay hmm i wonder what they're going to have for lunch stay what am i doing here i can't stand another minute of this stuff (laughs) stay and i heard this from a few interviews today I can't stand another minute of this. When are they going to ring the uh-uh, bell? <laughs> <laughs> stay. This is how we cultivate steadfastness. <clears throat> this compassionate stay. Staying with ourselves. This is such hard work, hard, hard, hard work and hard work. And there's ways potentially that we can utilize Trumpa Rinpoche sometimes talking about like, like you use manure that you put in the garden that potentially we can work with our as he would call it, our neuroses our unwelcome guests as Rumi would call them many different traditions this way there's a perennial wisdom that talks about the possibility of using what comes up inside us as part of our practice this is extraordinarily radical Pema writes here further in the book, When Things Fall Apart, she goes, generally speaking, when we regard discomfort in any form, it's usually considered as bad news. But for practitioners or spiritual warriors, people who have a certain hunger to know what's true, feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, fear, the whole list, instead of being bad news, are actually very clear moments that teach us where it is that we're holding back. They teach us to perk up and lean in when we feel we'd rather collapse and back away. They're like messengers that show us with terrifying clarity exactly where it is that we are stuck. Beautiful way of being able to hold this, like messengers showing us with terrifying clarity Exactly where it is that we are stuck. This moment's the very perfect teacher, and lucky for us, it's with us wherever we are. So, how do we be with our anger, our fear, our pain? times, within our practice, we come face-to-face, heart-to-heart, with some deep grief, anger, sadness. And we're learning in our practice to be able to begin to meet these with our hearts open, to allow ourselves to feel what has not been acknowledged. there's an amazing thing that happens when we begin to turn into our pain at times you may hear from my voice I sound like I'm from Boston and I am and in the winter time, you drive in snow and often you get into skids and as an early driver when I was young whenever I got into a skid my impulse was to turn away from it because it scared me, and I wanted to get away from the skid, and yet the more I turned away, the more I skidded out. Till one day, my father said to me, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn into it. Well, I heard that, and that scared me, and I I thought my father was crazy. I didn't believe him. So I kept on turning away and skidding out for a long, long time. Eventually there came a day where I fully exhausted the turning away and there was no other choice but to turn towards. And lo and behold, I couldn't believe that my car began to straighten out. It was a revelation. And in many ways, in a parallel way, turning into the skid of our fears, our pains, our sadness, beginning to acknowledge what's present. Maybe one thing that might offer to be helpful we hear a lot of the times the word acceptance. Often acceptance, the implication is that somehow we are okay. We're at peace with what's there, but for many of us, very difficult to accept our pain, our sadness, our fear, our illness. So perhaps another word just to, uh, just to offer a slight distinction is the word acknowledgement, that Perhaps the space for us to acknowledge our pain. We don't necessarily have to accept it yet. But we're just acknowledging, oh, this, this hurts. And we've heard through the ages about all I need to do is just let go. Just let go of this pain. You know, if we knew how to let go of the pain, we would have done it years ago. Perhaps the letting go also is a word that can confuse us at times in our practice, and perhaps a better word is to let be. To feel into what's present and acknowledging it, letting it be. I sometimes consider mindfulness to be akin to like the sky that is made of air. And no matter what type of storm enters into the sky, the sky just gives room for the storm. Whether it's a Category 1 or up to a Category 5 hurricane even, the sky just okay. <clears throat> gives the space for the storm to run its course. And because of that spaciousness in time, that Category 5 dwindles into a Category Four, three, two, one. It's because of the immensity and spaciousness of the sky that gives space to whatever arises will eventually pass away. One of the powerful teachings of the Buddha is that whatever is conditioned, whatever comes into being, this even applies to the weather as it's rising and it's passing. As we give space to what arises within us, acknowledging, letting be with our fear, our pain, our sadness, if we feel some stability inside for us to do this. The other aspect that I'm going to come back to in just a few moments is the aspect of also knowing take a step back, this practice of self-compassion. I'd like us just to reflect upon as we hold our practice being at times visited by the unwelcome guests. Is there a way to begin to acknowledge what's present, to let it be? Letting it run its course. Jennifer Wellwood writes, willing to experience aloneness I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end for each condition that I flee from, it pursues me. In each condition, I welcome transforms me. That's the punchline. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me. We just have a few minutes left, and want to mention one important teaching from Tompu Lucero. that is extremely kind. He actually wrote a really um, actually I don't think he wrote this but I think he gave a discourse and people transcribed it on the foundations of mindfulness and it just goes into like each of our senses if you have greed in the eyes, greed in the ears, nose, so forth, and then it goes to anger, goes to ignorance. But what he's talking here that's really important to me says that when you become aware that you have greed arising within you, or hatred, or ignorance, if you know that's arising, you're gaining knowledge. This is a very, very important point. And it's also incredibly loving. If we become aware that greed or hatred and ignorance is arising within us, and we know it, we're accumulating knowledge, that knowing is a factor, as a mental factor of mindfulness. It's already beginning to change because of the awareness. Tampalucero would challenge us sometimes to say, what's worse, a person that's killing people, and they know that they're killing them, or they're not even aware of it? And I thought, you know, those that aren't aware of it because, you know, at least they're not doing it with intention. And he says, well, you know, actually, if you're not aware of it and you stay not aware of it, you're going to kill till the end of time. But if you're aware of it, someday you'll realize what you're doing and you'll stop. It's cultivation of knowledge. When we become aware of greed, hatred, or ignorance arising within us in that moment, That is a mindfulness factor. That's a knowledge. That's a knowing. In time, potentially, these fires will begin to dissipate through our knowledge, through our wisdom. The last thing I want to talk about is that actually at the dinner table... We were talking, and um, I was mentioning to Richard about um, beautiful talk on self-compassion, and his wife Kathy, and brought up and we were discussing this saying, that, but but how do you do it? Did we talk about how do you do it? And we hear the word self-compassion, so I'd like to just end with a little bit of some thoughts and reflections on how to do it. So doubt we have all these wonderful phrases, may I be happy, may I have ease of body and mind, may I have compassion. I mean, we can make up a lot of different, very beautiful, benevolent phrases. And as I was actually talking with one person earlier today that struggled, to can say the phrases, but it doesn't mean anything to me. I can't feel it. I think this is a, a common occurrence with us, and sometimes even the opposite arises. We feel more <clears throat> self-loathing. One of the ways that I work with it is that it is beautiful to say the phrase, But from hearing the phrase or saying the phrase out loud, to begin to feel into those words and what would it be like to actually have an experience of those words into our own hearts. And this perhaps is part of our own struggle, our struggling, like a labor, a birthing into the discovery of opening our heart that we could actually touch it with some kindness, with some compassion. So, I'd like to just uh, offer us in our practice from time to time as we consider the quality of self compassion, what would it be like, as well as saying those phrases, to begin to try to sense into feeling it? Almost like a blind person with the braille or with the cane finds their way. It's a way of us working, feeling into this discovery of this experience of opening into the heart with compassion. And when we consider in our life up till now, as we look back in our past, we've done a lot of different things. Some skillful, some not so skillful. You know many of us live with some shame, regret, dread, our old wounds. May we reflect upon that all of our past, this life has led us indeed to this moment here in this room as we hear these words right now. May there be a spirit of reconciliation. What has happened in the past has led us to this moment. So let's just sit for a few moments. Just sensing in. This is a sensing in. I could offer some phrases, but my intuition is, I would love each of us to find our own phrases, cultivating this quality of compassion for ourselves right now. Feeling into the heart discovering our own words perhaps using the words from the Buddha may I be safe may I be happy may I have ease of body and mind may I know peace into these phrases or your own opening into the heart and may we all know the peace of the Buddha at this moment there's nothing more that we need to do opening into the heart of compassion. to just gently end with one last reading from the Velveteen Rabbit. What's real? asked the rabbit one day. Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with you, but really loves you, <clears throat> then you become Real. Does it hurt?" asked the rabbit. Mm, yes, yeah, sometimes, said the skin horse. He was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit? asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. To become real takes a long time, and that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easy or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints, and very, very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except the people who don't understand and once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. May we all be at peace. Maybe we should say, from the Buddhist point of view, almost always. <laughs> <laughs> leave the uh, walking practice.